the sleep is low quality, if at all. So you got to get there fast, get there first, get offloaded, get food, get sleep, get back at it. If you're the last guy to the tender, you're in line for an hour or two hours. And on a three hour closure, that just doesn't cut it. It's a grind. Welcome back for the second episode of JetCast by Marine Jet Power, the video podcast where we're mixing up the flow of marine industry news with firsthand input from industry experts. Today, we have a really exciting episode planned for you. We're going to be taking a behind the scenes look at the largest commercial salmon fishery in the world, Alaska's Bristol Bay. I'm your host, Kelsey Namath, Marketing Manager for Marine Jet Power, and I'm joined by two industry experts. First up, we have MJP's own UltraJet expert, Jim Campbell, and Captain Quinn Silstitch, owner and uh, captain of the FV Smoky Point. So for those viewers that are watching that maybe aren't aware of how the fishery works, could you please um, explain how the season works? Sure, sure. So Bristol Bay is out in southwest Alaska, and there's four or five watersheds that all, you know, are part of that Bristol Bay area. And uh, we fish for sockeye salmon. And uh, as you said, it's the biggest one in the, in the world. And they're anadromous fish. So they start off in the freshwater. They're, you know, they lay their eggs in the freshwater. They're born in, in the freshwater streams, hang out in the lakes for a year or two. And then they head for saltwater and that's where they put on their pounds. And of course they return to the same streams that they were hatched in. So and the Alaska Department of Fish and Game manages those rivers and streams and allows us to catch the excess fish, if you will, um, that come back. So uh, there's 1,800 permits or something like that out there, uh, drift permits. <clears throat> there's also set netters. And we, we put our nets in the water every summer and, and uh, try to catch it all we can. Yeah, that's great. So we know it's an extremely short season. So six weeks, is that correct? Yeah, about six weeks. It's probably a little different for everybody. There's the influx of folks. There's the local people, um, you know, whether they're local to the watershed or local to Alaska. And then there's folks coming from out of state and, you know, out all across the world. Everybody's a little bit different, but the main part of the season is a good solid five, six weeks. Yeah. It is really short. And you mentioned that it is a high concentration of water jet boats there. And an article that stated Bristol Bay, Alaska is the highest concentration of jet boats anywhere in the world. This question is kind of for both you, Jim and Quinn. Why do you think that is? Well, I used to think that Cordova was the largest concentration of, of jet boats, but the way the bay has gone and the success that they've seen in the bay I think now the bay is the highest concentration of jet boats. And it's, for me, uh, Quinn can, can jump in here, but for me, it's obvious the shallower that you're able to fish, the more concentrated you're able to catch the fish. And that allows you to fill up your fish holes faster, get back to the tender faster, deliver, and get right back in line to fish. Have I got that right? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there for sure. The fish don't always hang out in the shallows. So, you know, with a jet boat, you've got, you know, 
luckily, you know, you can fish in deep water too, but on the flats in the, the shallower areas, you know, you, you, those fish get concentrated in there, you know, as they try to hang out in there, um, as long as they can, as the tide starts dropping or vice versa, they, you know, flood in there as, as it's coming in, you know, the longer you can stay in there with the fish, uh, the, the faster you can fill up. And it's just, that's, that's the big move, you know, um, you have all your options open when you can fish all the areas. When, how long have you been fishing the bay? North of 20 years. I've been skippering with my own boat since 1996. Um, and uh, that was the last of a few good years. And that was the beginning of some, some bad years. There were some really low returns and run failures right after that. So um, I did it for little to no money for quite a while. Um, so it's nice these last, you know, this last decade or two has been, been really well, not two decades, but, you know, decade anyway, uh, has been really good. So uh, things have been well there. Uh, we've been on the upswing on the cycle. So that's really nice for everybody. Um, the fleet has been repowering and, and building new boats uh, the last five years, just like crazy. So it's nice to have some money back in the fishery. Okay. And what's your background uh, when you're not fishing? I mean, the, the... I've met a lot of commercial fishermen over the years that are biologists or got into it for one reason or another. And I'm curious as to how you got into it. Well, uh, my, my dad did it in Cordova is where he started fishing. He was in a, a, a wooden skiff, maybe like Miller skiff, I think they called it, or Tiedemann skiff maybe is what they're called. Um, wooden flat bottom yeah. with an outboard and uh, back in the 70s. And, you know, I went out with him a few times when he had a, a bow picker that, you know, I think was a jet, but I'm not really positive. Uh, that was a mighty long time ago. And then he moved to Bristol Bay. And so I've been, you know, you know I started there when I was nine, um, just running the hydraulics for my dad and uh, getting yelled at and, you know, having to do all the dirty jobs that the, the low man on the totem pole has to do. But uh, I learned a lot, and then I, I moved um, to Prince William Sound. Well, I mean, I grew up in Cordova, so I uh, so then I moved back there, uh, seining with some family friends, and and seined in Chignik, and you know, I mean, I've been all the way from in the north, you know, herring gill netting in Security Cove down to um, hand trolling for albacore in the Roaring Forties, ten days south of Tahiti. So I've I put in my time on the sea, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, in the, in the years where we had a few run failures, I, I, I was forced to take other work. So I went to the oil fields in Northern Alaska and, and worked up, worked there for 20 some years now too. Yeah. One of the things that I found about commercial fishermen is they are uh, jack of all trades. I mean, if, if you're going to be on a boat and you've got mechanical equipment on that boat that needs service or whatever, you need to take care of yourself. And a lot of our customers seem to be pretty self-sufficient. Yeah. Well, no one man is, can do it all. So you, you really have to hire uh, good help as well. So I've, you know, I've had a, I've got a couple of guys have been with me for eight years and, and they can, you know, they can do more than I can for sure. You know, we can weld, we you know, do our own hydraulic work, um, you know, repair these new boats the design of the hydraulics are quite complicated these days so um we you know we we 
do what we can with that. We've got RSW systems or refrigerated seawater systems on the boat. So um, one of my guys is the HVAC tech, so he, he knows a lot about that and that's that's awesome. So just really have to pull from all your resources uh, and uh, get all the help you can because these boats are not uh, our father's boats. That's I know some guys that have five crews, so there's six guys on the boat. Those guys can really get the fish out of the net, which is that's the slowest part of the whole process is it's easy to get them in if they're there, right? Uh, and then you got to, each one's got to come out by hand. You got to pick it, they call it, pick the fish out of the net. And that's certainly the slowest, most time consuming piece of the process. On that, that same line, you know, we heard reports that this year was an absolute record breaking smash any previous historical record for how many fish were caught. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what contributes to that? Yeah, it was the epic season for sure. We had north of 60 million fish catch. So by far the, the largest. And then the escapement was, you know, right around 19 million or something like that. So 78, 79 million fish total run. That's just, that's huge. There was fish everywhere this year. It was, it was a, it was a sight to see for sure. Any one reason on, on something on that, that kind of abundance is pretty hard to pin down, but it certainly starts with the healthy watershed. Uh, the streams and the lakes and the rivers and a healthy ocean, and then ends with proper management. You know, they have uh, ADF&G does an escapement-based management where they put in towers or sonars or whatever, and they they count. They literally count the fish as they as they return, and that's a lot of counting for for 20 million fish coming back up a river. You know, uh, past the tower or the sonar. Um, so and and. They have their preseason forecast and they, they plot that on a curve, you know, over, you know, over time. And, and we don't get to go fishing until they start getting, you know, fish past the tower and are they're uh, you know, on or ahead of their escapement curve. Um, so we don't have a quota. We just catch as much as we can in the, uh, the allotted time they give us. They give us a, an opener or two every day if they're getting their escapement. And, and of course, the past several years, they really have been getting a lot and getting more than they anticipated. So that's, it's healthy there right now. Yeah. And of course, not all the fisheries across the planet are, and, and even some in Alaska have, are struggling a bit, but Bristol Bay has just been a firecracker for, for the past decade or so. You guys are basically stewards of that resource. And that's another thing that I've just really appreciated about uh, commercial fishermen is I don't see guys that are just want to go out there, catch every fish that they possibly can, the hell with the future. You guys are part yeah. of a management system and you're taking care of that resource that you have so that you can pass that down to future generations. Yeah, it just has to be that way. I mean, we, we've seen, seen uh, you know, like the... Uh, some other fisheries, I won't name any because I, you know, know, don't know them all that well, but there's, you know, they've overfished some fisheries. It's just, it's just happened. We just can't do that here. I mean, I guess we could, but nobody wants to. So uh, Alaska does a really good job. They ha they're conservative and they, they have to be, and that's a, that's a struggle between the fishermen and the managers, um, but they have the final call just the way it is. And in the end, it's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. I have seen a lot of opinions on why the runs are so much larger, you know, these days. And uh, one of the uh, thoughts was that, you know, with the oceans warming just a tad and maybe the glaciers melting a little bit more, there's more uh, plankton production in the water, which of course feeds the salmon as they're out in the oceans living their lives before they come back to the rivers. It may even be that they're a slightly smaller 
per fish than they were in the past, but I'm sure all of these things kind of come and go, you know, in different ways. Yeah, they do. And, you know, like with the glaciers melting, I mean, that just adds to the amount of available nesting areas over time. I mean, you know, I'm not a expert on that, obviously, but as they have more food, it's more opportunity, right? They are getting smaller though, as when I first started fishing, I remember I would often buy net with a mesh size of about five and eight inches. Well, that, that's that's way too big now. Um, so the fish uh, have gotten smaller for sure, for sure. And, you know, what causes that? I, I And, they, and sometimes that. they attribute that to the competition then for food that you have out in the ocean. If you have a lot more fish, uh, the competition uh, for what they have to eat, and then that, that can also contribute to the size of the fish. I believe that's true. So. So tell us about opening openers and opening day. So tell us what that is like a little bit and how, you know, everybody's lined up and with the nets and tight spaces and and having water jets, how does that kind of help you in that scenario? Yeah, so the ADF and G depending on which river system you're in, you'll get one opener a day or 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 maybe two. Um and they try to work around the tides. Uh, um so there's boundary lines and we will, we, we will, the fishermen will just congregate at the boundary line in any given river system, depending on if it's the flood or the ebb. And so ADF and G doesn't really like that. So they try to manage the time openings and closings to avoid us catching everything coming into the district because the fleet's really good at, at stopping a certain amount of fish. Uh, coming into the district. They can't stop them all, of course, just because, especially on a big year like this, but they, they have to have a closure. So the fish will will get into the district on the flood or the ebb, depending on, again, which, which river system it is. That way, uh, as the next flood happens or what have you, that'll push fish up past the district and into the inner river where they've made it home and they've got, they're going to go spawn. And they just manage it that way. And we try to catch as much as we can uh, when they allow us to go. So like in the Nushigak River, they'll they'll give us maybe two eight-hour openers a day. So that, you know, or an eight and a 10. So that doesn't leave a whole lot of time, downtime to to deliver your fish, to, to get some food, get some sleep, and get back to where you want to start fishing again for the next period. And, you know, that's where... You know, these this horsepower comes into play and, and jet units come into play um, because you can skip across the bars. You don't have to go down around the bar and, and into the channel and so on and so forth. And that just takes time. And you're, you're really trying to beat everybody to the tender line because all the catchers, all the little boats with the gill nets on them, all run to the, the tenders, which are oftentimes big crabbers that you've seen on, on the Disney Channel and whatnot. And we, we deliver our fish to them. Then we get a receipt and they take it off to the processor and, and process it. But if you're the last guy to the tender, you're in line for an hour or two hours. And on a three hour closure, that just doesn't cut it. The sleep is low quality, if at all. And so you got to get there fast, get there first, get offloaded, get food, get sleep, get back at it. And, and, and after doing that for, for five or six weeks, I mean, it's a grind. It takes a toll. You're a zombie. You know, your decisions really start to, to deteriorate on where where to go, where to fish, you know, how long to keep your net in the water. 
it's it's a grind. Was that something you took into consideration when you were designing and building your new vessel, the Smoky Point? Yeah, for sure. I have 1,200 horsepower on the Smoky Point now, which is, is a lot, but it's not the most. You know, there's I think there's guys out there with like 1,600 horsepower these days, which is mind-boggling to have that much. But when you have an opening set for, you know, five or 6,000 pounds and you can get on step and go to the next location where your buddies are nailing them or, you know, your secret spot or whatever, you know, you just, you just have to have it, you know, and if you don't, you're just going to be average or below average. And there's, you know, there's folks that are trying to have this be their one job and, and live off of what they make in these five or six weeks for the rest of the year. I mean, there's, you know, not that many folks doing that, but there's some for sure. So, um, when I wanted the smoky point, when, when I wanted this boat, I, I wanted to be able to pack a lot. I wanted to be able to get a lot on step, um, and move fast with, with my refrigerated fish. And this year I got 9,300 pounds up once and 9,700 pounds up another time. So that's a lot of freaking weight, um, that uh, you're moving, uh, doing t 25, 28 knots, uh, back to the tender. So. There are workhorses, these boats these days, that uh, they're a sight to see. These And the, the guys that are operating them are pros, and they're really good. And it's it's awesome to see a guy setting a net at, you know, 18 knots or 22 knots or something like that up in the shallows. And so you have to have a jet boat to do that. It's just the way it is. And you chose Jeff Johnson at Peregrine to build your boat. How was that experience? Oh, well, it was good. You know, the, the short version is, is it's good. And it happened over COVID. So that was bad. I didn't, wasn't always allowed into their shop, um, which I would like to have been there for the whole time, but you know, I've never built a boat before. So, you know, what have I, have I really helped? How much would I have really helped? Um, that I made some decisions on design that really weren't the best. And, you know, uh, that's just the way, the way it is. I'd like to do it over again, you know, like to build another one. Um, they say that, uh, you know, you got to mm -hmm. build, build it three times to really have what you, what you'd hoped for the first time. But, um, you know, that's, that's not, well, we do have multiple customers that have built boats. So, uh, we'd be happy to help you with that down the road. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful boat though. It sure is. I, I think it's, you know, I'm obviously biased, but you know, the, I think it's the, the most beautiful of this bow stern picker style that, that that's out there. Yes. You've got the high cabin that gives you better visibility uh, all around the boat while you're fishing. Yeah. Everything except for right under my feet, which is oftentimes where the, the crew is at. They're working right under the cabins, but I've got cameras for that. But with that big cabin up, up high, it's a sail, you know, and with no keel, man, that boat will slide through the water with the wind for sure. That's, that's one of the, the drawbacks, but far outweighed by the, the amount that it'll pack. I had 24,000 pounds refrigerated under the hatches this year. So, you know, that, that helps. There's a lot of boats that, that won't do that. Um, won't do many boats only do yeah. half of that. So that's time traveling to the tender when I'm still fishing. So you said you've been doing this for a long time since the nineties and, you know, you saw your father do it before you. So how have you seen uh, vessel designs and builds with propulsion packages change over the years? 
Yeah. Well, we've talked a little bit about that. Like my dad on the Copper River Flats having a, you know, wooden boat with an outboard. We've come a long way, baby, from that, right? Uh, you know, do these twin jet mm-hmm. bow pickers or stern pickers, not everybody's got a bow picker or, or like I do, have got both in one boat. But uh, there for a long time, there was just pr- props in the bay. I mean, I don't know when the first jet boat got to Bristol Bay, but I'm sure it was, you know, 30 years ago or so. Most of the new boats are, are jet boats, you know, because they, they see, you know, the skippers have seen these guys with their jet boats, just nailing them. You know, they come to the tender and you've got your five or six or 8,000 pounds and somebody's coming in with 20,000 pounds or 30,000 pounds or something like that. And there's less of that now because there's more guys in the shallows fishing. I mean, obviously this year, there's plenty of guys coming in with 30,000 pounds, but um, with more horsepower and more jet boats, that's, and the, the boats were restricted uh, in Bristol Bay to the boats are, are only 32 feet long. That's the max by law. So, you know, my first boat was a, a fiberglass stern picker that was just under 11 feet wide. Well, now the Smoky Point is 17 feet wide. And there's a lot of boats that are 15 feet, 16 feet, and, you know, and beyond, you know, 18 or 19 feet wide. And I've seen designs for boats that were going to be 21 feet wide with triple jets. And, you know, I mean, it's going to be a square pretty soon. It's, it's <laughs> changed a lot over the last, you know, 50 years for sure. Having such a short season, how does that impact your vessel operations and preparedness with understanding like the cost of downtime and parts availabilities? Did that lead to any decision for you to choose water jets for your boat? Well, every, in a perfect world, your boat and all its, its uh, components are going to work beautifully and, and never fail. But that's not the real world. Um, there is downtime and downtime just equals heartbreak and, and lost income. You really have to be prepared. You go up, we, you know, the fleet arrives in May and, and gets their boat ready and does their usual stuff, getting the nets ready, changing the oil. I'm putting in rebuilt impellers because in the shallow water, you tear stuff up and sucking up rocks and pumping sand and stuff like that. So I got to have the inject, the uh, impeller rebuilt almost every year wasn't that bad this year. The fish were not in the shallows in the district that I was in, in, in the numbers that they have been in the past, just, just their pattern. So it's much less wear and tear this year than I've, and I've had in the past. You have to go through all your hydraulic lines and make sure there's no chafing. And, you know, you got to make sure your thrust bearing has been greased and it's not going to leak and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really just an endless process. And sometimes you don't get it all done before the gun goes off and you got to go fishing. So you kind of manage, manage it as you go along. But, you know, for me, you know, obviously a water jet is certainly has more, is more complex than a, than a prop, you know, that's sitting on a shaft, but the complexities are, are not, you know, I'm no rocket scientist and, you know, I can do it. Certainly, you know, you can do it. And just, it's, it's not hard. Um, you know, the benefits far outweigh any down. I don't even know what the downside is. You know, that's, uh, you know, they're just, they're just way better to have in my personal opinion. So. It almost seems to me, uh, based on all my experience, that there's two different types of fishermen. There are the fishermen that, um, want to put their boat away, ready to go for next season. So they'll actually get some spare parts after the season so that they can get their boat ready 
put that thing away and then know that it's there and they come back around next summer. And then I have other guys that seem to go up at all varying different times. Some, I would argue, too late. And they're in a panic trying to get their boat ready. And like you said, maybe they're not ready when the gun goes off. I don't know why you're looking at me when you say that, that last part. No. <laughs> I, uh, <I'm> not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't put you in that category yeah. at all. No, but, no, I, I, but we have had some guys and I was, I'm thinking, what, what were you waiting for? Because like you said, you have too much on the line. You, you, yeah. You've got a lot to lose if you're not ready to roll. Yeah. And, you know, I think that just fishermen in general are adverse to spending money, you know, um, but you, you don't, if you don't spend money on, on maintenance, it's just going to cost you. Like if you, in the peak of the season, you know, early July, mid July, if you have a breakdown and your part is in Seattle or in, it doesn't really matter if it's not on the boat and you can't fix it, you're losing money. And the part costs X amount of dollars. And, uh, that's, that's X amount of fish and it's not very many fish, you know, fish are, they're worth a lot of money right now. And downtime that's a heartbreaker. So you, you have to be prepared. You got to carry your critical spares. You just, you just have to straight up. Absolutely. Well, I have just one last question for you. And this is how we like to end every podcast episode. What is your best, most memorable experience on the water to date? Well, the oceans are, are beautiful, of course. The freedom and the adventure is like nowhere else on the planet, but they can also exact a heavy toll. And all my near-death experiences have been on the water. So um, that's, like I said, I've been fishing since I was around nine and, you know, from, from Alaska to the South Pacific. And there has been many, you know, hand-lining uh, albacore. I've caught... Yeah, um, one of those uh, marlin, striped marlin on a hand line. Didn't land that one, but it was an epic experience for sure. Um, the the sunsets, the the good weather and the bad can be fun. You know, the fish really in Alaska, those salmon, they pour in when the weather's bad. The wind pushes the fish for sure. So over almost 45 years now of fishing, um, there's a lot of memories uh, to pull just one. That seems like uh, an unfair question, honestly, but uh it's it's been a great it's a great life working on the sea well i can answer this one if i can weigh in on it so when we decided to get into the commercial market for fishing um i am a bit of an outdoorsman and our my boss said would you like to go up to alaska and learn about commercial fishing so i flew up to cordova we had a few customers in cordova and i went out on an opener with one of our customers never met him before he was nice enough to take us out we fished a 24-hour opener I learned how to pick fish out of the net. Um, we were icing them up at that time. And so we were blading them and icing them. And um, I think in the 24 hour opener, we caught about 4,000 pounds of fish. I went from Cordova and flew up to uh, King Salmon. I went out on the Eternity. And you know, you gotta remember, I'm just an Ohio guy. I'd never seen anything like this. So I went out on the Eternity. I did a, an opener on the Eternity. And I think we caught 10,000 pounds in the first 12 hours. And like you said, it was go, go, go. It was hectic. Um, I remember catching a nap down in the little doghouse that they have. They have a very similar raised platform like you do on your boat. And I, I woke up and I thought it was daytime because it was very bright. And when I crawled out of there, I realized we were at the tender, the fish flopping on the deck, the, all the fish holds were full. So that was my introduction to Bristol Bay and something that will always have a, a huge impact on me. And that, I think that was in 97 that I went, so quite a while ago. 
things have changed. I think there were some good times then before it turned a little bit south for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So when you mentioned Cordova, that's where I first started seeing the ultra jets on some of my friends' bow pickers down there. Then I started seeing them in Bristol Bay and it just, I wanted to try something different. So that's why I went with the, the ultra jets and you know, the, I, there was four or five other guys building similar boats as mine and they all chose that. So it was kind of in this in, I think I might started being built in 2019. So I figured, you know, there's, there's a movement there. These guys are all really good fishermen in North line guys of the Igigik district. And if they're using them, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon and, and ride it. And I do like them. There's some easier aspects of the maintenance that I really do enjoy, honestly, it's from the brand I had before. Good. Well, thank you both so much uh, for being guests on the show today. Thank you to everyone watching for tuning in for the second episode of JetCast. If you would like to be a guest on our next show, or if you have any questions or comments, Feel free to leave them below in the comments or email us at marketing at marinejetpower.com. And if anybody wants to go over to my YouTube channel, Saltwater Salmon, all one word, please do check it out. You'll see the, the Smoky Point in action in Bristol Bay.